0: From the studios of One Jacks Productions, this is The Revealing, a ministry of One Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. All right, so um, good evening. Uh, Hey, and so if you have your notes, thank you, um, Chris, for making sure everyone else got those. If you didn't, then please see him and he'll make sure to uh, get those to you. But I think we got everyone. Uh, Great to be back in the pulpit last week, uh, being Thanksgiving. And so we took a little time off, um, but here we are again. And uh, December fourth, third, December third, and um, it'll feel like Christmas tomorrow. Probably it's going to go quick. So, um, has anybody finished all of their Christmas shopping? Almost, almost. Yes, yes. Look, Pam, that's it. Don't, don't, don't choke over there, Pam. You don't think it's so emotional about it? And it's, it's, <laughs> yes. Um, Okay, so um, what we're talking about tonight is, it may seem like kind of a special Christmas message. It's most definitely not uh, designed to be that. Um, It's really kind of where we fell in our study. And so uh, this is a pretty cool thing to be talking about this. But if you recall, two weeks ago, we did talk about, we kind of were ushered into the Pergamos church period. Um, We've spent 20... I don't know, it was 25, 27-something. The first two church ages, uh, periods of church history, Laodicea, oh, excuse me, um, I'm getting way ahead of myself, um, Ephesus and uh, Smyrna. And effective, a couple weeks ago, our last session, we entered the Pergamos church and the Pergamos church period of Revelation chapter 2. And uh, I-, I came across uh, this um, a fictional account. Uh, if you ever read... Um, C.S. Lewis uh, writes a book called The Screwtape Letters, and great book. Uh, it's a work of fiction, um, but it's similar to that. It's not this, but it's very similar, uh, but in, just to kind of give you a flavor if you're not familiar with it, in The Screwtape Letters, uh, C.S. Lewis records a, um, a dialogue between um, Wormwood and Screwtape, basically a cousin, and, um, or excuse me, an uncle and nephew type of relationship uh, where... Um, In the Screwtape letters, Screwtape is writing letters to Wormwood uh, to try to get orders uh, on how to best infiltrate God's church and God's people and and do the best that he can to thwart the enemy, which is the living God. And uh, you kind of just see that dialogue there through the book. Um, And it really sheds some interesting light and insight on um, spiritual warfare and things like that. Um, So this is similar to that. It's just a brief... Uh, somewhat brief explanation of what, what I, I think it really fits well of what Satan uh, has been doing in this period of church history, the Pergamus church period we've been talking about um, and, and leading up to this point. Because remember, in Ephesus and in Smyrna, there was a lot of persecution going on. Uh, Satan was coming against God's people, trying to extinguish the, the, the fire and the lie of the gospel, but uh, the church kept growing. And so what we started to see last week or last session uh, was kind of a a change there with Constantine. And we'll do a quick review of that in a few moments. But listen to this uh, fictitious explanation uh, that I think kind of fits well here with what we're studying. Um, It's a book called The Naked Church by Wayne Jacobson. And it says this, how easily Satan must have thought he could snuff out the light of God's kingdom in the world once Jesus had ascended to the Father. Only 120 followers remained And they were huddled away in fear. Though the day of Pentecost must have been a setback for him, he soon responded with a new strategy. Bring in a heavy dose of persecution to extinguish the flame. But it didn't work. Centuries of persecution followed, first by the Roman emperors, but the church continued to thrive and expand. People discovered the power of the risen Lord, and at great cost surrendered their lives to him. Sometime late in the third century, Satan must have called a conclave or a meeting, a council. Uh, Hades the first, he probably called it. Since persecution had failed so miserably, this diabolical council needed to develop a new strategy to undermine the life of the church. The solution it produced has done far more to render the church powerless than any persecution ever has. The objectives were clear. The plan would have to diffuse the self-sacrificing love that carried the church through conflict, distract it from intimacy with God, and devalue the importance of the individual believer. And, since the church had already prevailed over direct assaults, the plan needed to be so deceptive that it could not be recognized as coming from hell. A few suggestions were offered, but they were so weak that they didn't even invite discussion. After a painfully long silence, someone, perhaps Screwtape, came up with a very simple idea. Well, trying to keep it small hasn't worked. Let's make it big. All the other devils gasped, thinking that old Screwtape had finally bolted his sanity. Make it big? What do you think we've been working so hard to prevent? Just hear me out, colleagues. We can kill it with its own success. What would happen if the church suddenly became acceptable? Lots of people would go to it, you idiot. But what would all those people do to it? Screwtape replied with a smirk. Then he sat back as he watched their minds churn. And one by one, the others began to see the brilliance of his scheme. One said, well, many would just come for social reasons. They would quickly dilute those who are really in God's clutches. And just imagine all the programs and activities they would have to plan to keep those people happy. Nothing chokes intimacy as well as busyness. A crowd like that would have opinions so diverse and disruptive that the power of the gospel would be compromised in just a few short years. The church would eventually become a machine, chewing up individuals instead of loving them. Programs would take over where personal ministries now flourish, and everyone knows how easy it is to kill a program. Hear, hear, they all yelled. They couldn't possibly teach all the followers to walk with God personally, so they would soon substitute rules and guidelines for his ever-present voice. The machine would have to be run by professionals, of course. The others would become nothing more than spectators and bill payers. And that leadership would waste most of his time tied up in administration, which we know benefits almost no one, who would have time for individuals. They would have to try to disciple people by <laughs> regulations and the cracks in that well, they're so wide that we could go on vacation. And best of all, Screwtape added, they wouldn't even know what had happened to them. They would think themselves successful beyond their wildest dreams. They would be pillars in the community and stand before huge crowds. We would let them keep all their Christian terms, but we would substitute our own meanings. It's foolproof. But size alone won't do that, Screwtape, Satan himself finally said. They would still teach all those people what it really means to follow God, and they could still love people one by one, no matter how big it got. True, oh wicked one, Screwtape wagged his index finger, but do you think they would? Do you think they would risk losing all those people? or would resist the corruption that such power and influence would give them? Satan smiled in whatever ecstasy hell allows. Of course not. He slammed his fist on the finger on the table. Let's do it. And I think that's what we've seen in the church up until this point. Um, and that's what we saw started to happen two weeks ago in our um, study when we were looking at the the per, how the Pergamus Church period, so to speak, kind of was ushered in, um, and we talked about uh, if you remember those ten um, official Roman persecutions there on the Smyrna Church period, and those ten emperors, those ten Roman emperors, and that tenth one, Diocletian. If you remember him, man, uh, he was uh, the um, persecuting emperor of persecuting emperors. Like he was like the top guy who who just brought it hot and heavy, hard on those Christians. So much so, uh, Bibles and Christian writings were burned. uh, Churches were closed down, torn down. Civil rights of Christians were forfeited. And all these things were going on toward the end of Diocletian's reign. And then right around uh, 304, 305 AD, toward the end of his reign, uh, two powerful men began to vie for the the position of the new Roman emperor, one by the name of Constantine and the other by the name of Maxentius. Um, and so they, around 312 AD, uh, they duke it out in the Battle of Milvian Bridge. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. And uh, man, Constantine, he's hanging on the ropes, basically out for the count um, at his last resort. And he... he through whatever means, sees uh, a a vision in the sky, uh, whether it's physically seeing it or it's a dream, different accounts differ on that. But uh, he he sees this vision and he hears this voice and in the sky he sees uh, a a, a cross and and that cross uh, is um, the sign or the symbol. This voice tells him the sign by which he will conquer and he will win and he will reign and uh, Constantine and, Bo- and Eusebius, who writes of Constantine, uh, testify that, that this cross was actually uh, the first two Greek letters of the name of Christ. Um, if you remember the, the, the X there with the P in the background, if you can kind of remember that visual. And so uh, what Constantine does is he kind of takes that charge and, and uh, he begins to um, continue the battle. He wins the battle, becomes emperor of Rome, and all of a sudden Ca- Constantine claims to be a Christian. And because uh, he's now a Christian uh, through this, quote, experience, he begins to paint these crosses on all of the uh, helmets and the shields. Um, and we'll talk more about that as we go on uh, of, of his armies and, and of Rome. And now Christianity, which was once against the law, Christians, which were persecuted, churches, which were once torn down, Bibles, which were once confiscated, it was now against the law, to persecute Christians. It was against the law to strip them of their Bibles. And so uh, he kind of worked with some of his friends, um, loosely uh, paraphrasing history here, and um, came up with the Edict of Milan. And this edict, uh, decree essentially, that again restored Christians and churches, their quote, their freedoms, their rights to worship, et cetera, et cetera. And, And this looks like by all accounts, uh, even by many people today, especially in the Roman Catholic Church, a huge victory for Christendom, um, a, an awesome move of the Lord. But if it's one thing that I hope that you've learned in our studies so far, uh, if nothing else, is that we have to be careful when we look at something and call it a move of God. Because oftentimes what we say is a move of God is really a move of Satan. And it's really evil what's happening, but what we look at and call it good. Because we look at it through Christian eyes, and we don't look at it through biblical eyes, and that's what was going on there. And so, what we essentially see happening is uh, the pagan, the paganism, pagan practices, uh, pagan worship, all began to flood into the church, and the church is now quote married to the world. And that's what Pergamus means. It means much marriage. And so we talked about that all last week and, and, and I said at the end, or last time, and I said at the end of our last session, I said we're gonna start looking at different practices that we observe today uh, in the church that maybe we haven't really thought about where, from where they came. And We're gonna talk about um, a lot of different things in the next few weeks, uh, but it, it is Christmas time and it's, we're gonna talk about Christmas. Um, and, and I wanna say from the beginning, um, I'm not here to grinch you out. I love Christmas. Um, We have two Christmas trees in our house. Um, There's not presents under there yet. I don't know why, April, but there's not presents under there yet. You said three? Why? I didn't even know that was there. Okay, so it's getting out of hand. Um, Listen, we have beautiful decorations around this church. You're not gonna be able to leave tonight without seeing a Christmas tree. And there's wreaths here. I mean, and it's very nicely done. And I love getting gifts. I love buying gifts for people and giving them and and singing Christmas carols and spending time with family on Christmas Eve and Christmas morning and, and, and all the and teaching my daughter Christmas songs and all those things. So this is not an anti Christmas message. What this is, is there's there's a root to everything. There's an origin, right? Not not the man that we talked about. There's a beginning. And I want us to know some of these uh, practices that we're doing, uh, what they mean, where they came from, and all that stuff. Okay. And so we're gonna we're gonna go through this here, but please um, don't shoot the messenger. Uh, just know that I'm I'm just trying to tell you the facts here, um, if I can get my my life together up here. Okay. Here it is. So uh, one of the first things, as I said, I want to talk to you about is the, the um, there's a lot of Christ, Christianization, if I can use that word, Christianization of paganism that took place beginning with Constantine. In other words, a lot of pagan practices, doctrines, beliefs, et cetera, that are the same thing, just slapped with a Christian name on it, just slapped Jesus on it and it becomes Christian, okay? We see that even in the church today. Just because it has the name Jesus on it doesn't mean it's truly of the Jesus of the Bible. All right, we get that, okay? And so we're gonna talk about that in the context of Christmas. Okay, so Christmas is a winter festival, right? I think we get that. And I, I'm gonna hit you with some some quotes this evening on the screen. Most of them I included in your notes and on the screen. There may be one or two I didn't. Um, I think this first one is one that I didn't. So I'm just gonna read it to you. It comes from um, Ralph Woodrow, who wrote Babylon Mystery Religion. On page 143, he says this. Uh, the largest pagan religious cult which fostered the celebration of December 25th as a holiday throughout the Roman and Greek worlds, was the pagan sun worship, S-U-N, sun worship, Mithraism, that's M-I-T-H-R-A-I-S-M. This winter festival was called the Nativity or the Nativity of the Sun, S-U-N. There's another quote that I did put in your notes that I think is gonna be on the screen from the the Catholic encyclopedia that will validate this. And it says, the well-known solar feast of Natalis Invicti or Natalis Invicti, however you want to pronounce that. In other words, the nativity or birthday of the unconquered sun celebrated on the 25th of December has a strong claim on the responsibility for our December date. Okay, so what is this solar feast or this festival of uh, Natalis Invicti? All right, Uh, it is a celebration in Rome. It was just transferred to a Roman celebration, a pagan practice, and the Roman version or the Roman celebration, this is a blank in your notes, I think the only blank in your notes, it was called Saturnalia, S-A-T-U-R-N, named after the Roman God Saturn, the agricultural God, uh, A-L-I-A, Saturnalia. Uh, This festival uh, coincided with the sun, Entering its winter solstice. Okay, so, you know, in the northern hemisphere when, when the, the days, quote, get longer, kind of a thing. And this, this Saturnalia festival, this celebration, uh, was uh, several days of revelry, just meaning a major party, a major celebration. And in that celebration, it included feasting, it included parades, it included mistletoe, it included music. It included gift giving, it included lighted candles and it included decorated green trees. And so the 25th, December 25th is the actual birthday of the unconquered sun, S-U-N, or the sun god. Uh, in Rome, he was called Sol, S-O-L, where we get solstice, solar, solar system, etc. okay? Um, Cyril uh, Bailey in The Legacy of Rome writes this. This is also in your notes, just to validate what I'm telling you. It is common knowledge, and listen, it is. You don't have to go very far online to find this stuff. You really don't. It is common knowledge that most, excuse me, much of our association with the Christmas season, the holidays, the giving of presents, and the general feeling of geniality is but the inheritance from the Roman winter festival of Saturnalia. In other words, survivals of paganism. Okay, so if this is true, then how did it become Christian? Well, Constantine declared... Now remember, Constantine was a former pagan, right? Y'all remember that? We talked about this. He he grew up with these things. He grew up with these beliefs and these practices. And and he he just kind of started scratching his head once he converted to Christianity, and he's like, well, you know, since since we don't worship the sun god anymore, because we're Christian, let's declare December 25th to be an official Roman holiday in celebration of the birth of Christ. And so that's what happened. And that's how it got its new Christian name, Christmas, or Christ Mass, Christ Mass. Plus mass, also known, you may have heard this before, as Yule, Y U L E, right? Uh, Yule tide log, Yule tide carol, <laughs> and this word Yule and the meaning of it, we'll unpack it shortly. But it's very interesting. Watch this from uh, Alexander Hislop from the Two Babylons on page ninety four. Writes this: Yule is the Chaldean name. Chaldee is Babylonian. Is the Chaldean name for an infant or a little child, and as the 25th of December was called by our pagan Anglo-Saxon ancestors, Yule Day, or the Child's Day, and the night that preceded it, so our Christmas Eve, Mother Night, long before they came in contact with Christianity, that sufficiently proves its real character, far and wide in the realms of paganism was this birthday observed, And so, listen, what we have here so far is is Constantine, who is credited with ending paganism and embracing Christianity, but he didn't do that. He didn't repent of paganism and start to follow and adhere to biblical Christianity. He simply merged the two together. He simply married them together. Okay, and so if that's the roots, the pagan and then the Roman uh, roots of Christmas, and we'll talk more about it in just a minute. Well, we, we don't celebrate soul and, and we don't celebrate all that other stuff. We know that it's the day that Jesus was born, right? It's not, no, but we celebrate it as such. So, so, and that's fine. It's, no, I'm not up in arms about that, but we we should know. We should be informed Bible believers. And uh, we should know that Jesus Christ was not born on a cold winter night of December 25th. Um, It makes for great Christmas carols. Uh, It makes for beautiful Christmas cards. Um, But that's just one of the traditions that is kind of just rolled on through history and we've just kind of adopted and taken for granted. Uh, But if we look at the Bible and if we look at, look at, just slow down and kind of look at this objectively, first of all, the Bible never specifically uh, dogmatically gives us the date of the birth of Christ. Okay. So let's not pretend that we know the date of the birth of Christ. We don't, but we do know according to Luke chapter two, a couple things. We know that it was a time when the shepherds, Luke chapter two and verse eight tells us, the shepherds were abiding in the field with their flock, right? And we do know that shepherds in Judea did not abide in the fields in the middle of winter. They wouldn't and didn't do that. It, even though the, uh, the, the days were quite warm in that region, the nights are piercing, cold. And so the, the flock would get gravely sick or even die. And if you talk to, or even read uh, the writings of, of um, Orthodox Jewish rabbis or scholars, or even just citizens, people, they'll tell you around the time of what, uh, early to mid-October at the latest, they would have had those sheep taken in. They would have had their flock taken in for the winter off the fields. But we read in Luke chapter two and verse eight that there were shepherds out with their flock on this night. Okay, so keep that in mind. Um, something else interesting about the winter uh, Jesus, I think I put this verse up there, Matthew chapter 24 and verse 20, when he was telling uh, the Jews, hey, listen, in that time of Jacob's trouble, that tribulation period, when you have to flee from the wrath of the Antichrist or from Satan himself into the wilderness, he says, pray ye that your flight be not in winter. Why? Because that's just going to add to the tribulation when you're fleeing, okay? Okay. It's it's that bad, it's that cold. Um, More than likely, I would suggest that the date of the birth of Christ was most likely during the Feast of Tabernacles. Um, That Feast of Tabernacles was celebrated as uh, where uh, God would would dwell with his people. And we know according to John chapter one and verse 14, uh, that the word, the Lord Jesus Christ was made flesh and dwelt or tabernacled among us. Uh, and the, again, this tabernacle uh, feast celebrating, or excuse me, symbolizing the presence of God among his people. So we know that. Um, and that's just interesting to note. And so when you look at all this and you kind of put it in order, again, I'm not making a dogmatic statement, but we, I think we could reasonably conclude much more than December or December 25th, that it was probably mid to late September, maybe, ish. Uh, that, that Christ uh, would have been born. Um, so in the fall of the year, um, this would also be a much more feasible a way to uh, get people to come to back to uh, for the taxation and the census that was going on uh, they're not going to call everyone through the cold because I mean, you had to go from whatever town or city you were living in back to your hometown for that taxes for those taxes and, and for all of that stuff to take place and so they're not going to call you down for for all of that um, in the cold. Um, so for all those reasons, also Christ's public ministry began. This is just kind of, again, I'm just, these are interesting facts for you to consider. His public ministry began around his 30th birthday, right? We know that according to Luke 3, 23. I think I have that. Yeah, verses 22 and 23. Good night. And the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove upon him and a voice came from heaven, which said, thou art my beloved son and thee I am well pleased. And so at this point, Jesus himself began to be about 30 years of age. And just for a little plug-in for our um, Sunday morning study, uh, Numbers chapter four and verse three. Did I put that one in there? I think I did, but I'm not entirely sure. Yeah, there it is. The Lord spake unto Moses, this is just for funsies, uh, and unto Aaron saying, take the sum of the sons of Kohath from among the sons of Levi. So he's calling the priests out after their families by the house um, of their fathers. From 30 years old, they were to be called and upward until, even until 50 years old, all that enter into the host to do the work in the tabernacle of the congregation. And so what we see here is this uh, depiction or this description of uh, Jesus' earthly ministry beginning when he's around 30 years old um, uh, and continuing three and a half years. Well, that would put his crucifixion at around Passover, or at Passover, in the, which was celebrated in the spring, which was seen to necessitate a fall birthday if you kind of do that that math there, three and a half years. So, just some things to think about. Um, I'm not going to be mad at someone who thinks otherwise, uh, but you know, as as our pastor often likes to say, um, "What does you say? Oh, facts are a stubborn thing, right? Um, are, do y'all like that saying? By the way, is that okay? Can I, that I say that?" Okay. I didn't know if I could steal that from you or like if people were annoyed by that or like whatever, but it's okay. All right. I guess so. All right. So, um, okay. So I'm trying to get my thoughts together here. So we have all of these, I don't know, icons or components, aspects of Christmas that we celebrate and again, I'm not trying to tear things apart, limb by limb, no pun intended, uh, but I just want to show you some things for us to be an informed people. Um, I want to talk to you about Christmas trees, first of all. Um, and remember, as we talk about these things, all of this stuff that we've been talking about as far as the Bible and, and the birth of Christ and paganism and Saturnalia and all these things, Constantine didn't care about any of these things as far as the Bible is concerned. He just knew that he himself and, and the Romans, they were used to December 25th and we're, we're all Christians now, so this is just the way it's gonna be. But, but look how this unfolds. So um, Woodrow, again, writes in ba- uh, Babylon Mystery Religion on page 144, I think this is in your notes. He says, an old Babylonian fable told of an evergreen tree which sprang out of a dead tree stump. The old stump symbolized the dead Nimrod and the new evergreen tree symbolized that Nimrod had come to life again in Tammuz. Okay, I'm going to stop right there and kind of unpack this for a second. We're going to go into this in a little more detail, or a lot more detail in the, in the coming weeks. Uh, but let me just give you a brief synopsis in case you're unfamiliar with those first couple of sentences. If you go back to, you don't, don't do this, but when you go back to Genesis chapter 10 and chapter 11, Uh, you'll get introduced to a man by the name of Nimrod. Uh, Nimrod, the Bible says, uh, was wicked and rebellious. Uh, His name even means rebellion. Uh, The Bible says the beginning of his kingdom was Babel. Babel, Babylon, okay. Nimrod had a wife whose name was Semiramis. And so what happens is the way it shakes out is Nimrod dies and, and Semiramis they don't have any children at the time that he dies, but when Nimrod dies, his wife, Semiramis, claims that she has conceived miraculously through a sun beam. And so you have this miraculous virgin birth. Now, if you're thinking, you may be wondering, well, didn't that, all that, if that's not true, then didn't it happen before Jesus? So like, isn't the Bible's account of the virgin birth just a copy and a re-copy and old wives tales and fables of what's been passed down? Well, no. Well, how do you know that? If you go back to Genesis chapter three, you remember that when God was dealing with the man and the woman and the serpent, and he was kicking butt and taking names, he said to the serpent, what? The woman, the seed of the woman will crush your head, right? You will bruise his heel, but he will crush your head. And so Satan is, is, if I can say it this way, taking notes. He's trying to get ahead of this thing all through the Bible he is, all through history he is. And so if he can get ahead of this seed of the woman, then, well, he's ahead of the eight ball. And and one of the biggest objections that people have when it comes to the virgin birth, when it comes to Noah's flood, uh, when it comes to a lot of historical accounts in the Old Testament, is, well, aren't those just fables and tales that are, every religion has those things. Look what Satan was doing, y'all. But, uh, again, the way it shakes out is so. So, Semiramis so has this this miraculous birth um, through the sunbeam, and she names, him, or he's named Tammuz. So, it's a counterfeit virgin birth. Tammuz was Nimrod reborn, supposedly, and so you have the celebration of the birth of the sun god on December twenty fifth, and that the Tower of Babel. Back in Genesis chapter 10 and 11, what God did, if you recall, is he scattered them, um, confused their languages, but what they did is they took with them their pagan practices and teachings and worship. They were confused, they were scattered, their languages, the whole nine. But wherever they went, they took with them those pagan practices, that mother and that child, And that's why wherever you go, any major religion, whether it's a dead one or a current one, you will see in some way, shape or form, a mother and a child. You see it everywhere in the Roman Catholic Church. And oftentimes that mother and that child, there's often a a, a halo around the little child's head, but there's often a halo around the mother's head. It's very interesting what's going on here. And all these pagan false religions, they have that same stuff. It go, all goes back to Semiramis and Tammuz. And, and, for, and for those who, um, who who are familiar with this material, you know I'm not going in great detail on that right now. I just want to kind of get us collectively all on, on a somewhat of the same page Um we, Pastor Frank, has exhausted that in the past. Uh, we've talked about that in various studies, in our Genesis study, um, in our History of the Bible study. Uh, we have recordings of those things, so I do want to bring you to, to those things if you, if you want or need that. But back to our quote here. So that, that's what's going on here with Nimrod and Tammuz. And then he go, it, it goes on and says, Among the Druids, the oak was sacred. Among the Egyptians, it was the palm. And in Rome, it was the fir which was decorated with red berries during Saturnalia. The Scandinavian god, Odin, was believed to bestow special gifts at Yuletide to those who approached his sacred tree, excuse me, his sacred fir tree. So so, so maybe you can see some of the elements of Christmas that are coming into play here as we know them today. Again, I'm not saying we need to go tear down our trees or we need to stop giving gifts or stop singing songs. None of that, none of it. But uh, just know uh, where this stuff comes from and know that Christmas, this whole thing of Christmas, is just touching the hem of the garment of what paganism has been Christianized and been passed down through the churches, the church age. And we're going to see that a lot more in the next few weeks. But I want to take you to some verses um, where, uh, in the Bible, because I've, I've, I've given you enough, like, maybe facts or history or whatever, I want to go to the Bible and I want to just ask for us to see what God says about um, trees, but not just trees, what we would consider maybe Christmas trees. And I want us to notice that um, in these next, I think it's 10 verses that I pulled out. There's, I think there's a few more, but 10 verses, and it's going to sound like I'm anti-Christmas tree. I'm not. I promise. I just, I I don't believe God's anti-Christmas tree, okay? So that's not where we're going with this. But I just want us to see what's going on here. Um, And you'll notice in every single one of these verses, uh, you will see the phrase, every green tree. Every green tree. Well, aren't all trees green? Well, what kind of a tree is a Christmas tree? It's an evergreen tree tree, right? Where it stays green through the, the winter months. Okay. It can sustain colder winds, or colder temperatures. I'm not saying God's calling out Christmas trees specifically here. Again, I'm just showing you some of the connections here that that, that that we could be making. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 2. He says, You shall utterly destroy all the places where wherein the nations which ye shall possess served their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and upon, or excuse me, and under every green tree. Notice he Says under every green tree. First Kings 14, 23. For they also built them high places and images and groves on every high hill and under every green tree. Second Kings chapter sixteen and verse four. And he sacrificed and burnt incense in the high places. Those high places, by the way, were places of sexual immorality, uh, pagan worship, and debauchery and on the hills and under every green tree. 2 Kings seventeen ten. and they set them up images and groves in every high hill and under every green tree. 2 Chronicles 28, 4, he sacrificed also and in burnt incense in the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. Isaiah 57, verse 5, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree. Slaying the children in the valleys under the cliff of the rocks. Again, we see this common thread under every green tree. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 2 and verse 20. For of old time I have broken thy yoke and burst thy bands. And, and thou saidest, I will not transgress where upon every high hill and under every green tree thou wanderst playing the harlot. Jeremiah 3.6, The Lord also said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She has gone up upon every high mountain and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Jeremiah 3.13, Only acknowledge thine iniquity that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered thy ways to the strangers under every green tree, and ye have not obeyed my voice, saith the Lord. Then shall you uh, Ezekiel 613 then shall ye know that I and the Lord uh, when their slain men shall be among their idols round about their altars upon every uh, high hill in all the tops of the mountains and under every green tree and under every thick oak the place where they did offer sweet savor to all their idols and, and there's more it's very interesting what, what I what God is doing here because What I'm seeing, I don't know if you see it or not, but what I'm seeing is he's, if almost everyone, if not every verse I just read, 10 of them, he's linking something underneath every green tree with what is the common thread of all these verses? It's idolatry. Go back and look at every single passage we just read. He's talking about those in high places, erecting idols, Worshipping false gods. And just strictly from a a devotional perspective. I mean, I can't think of another time when when we have more idols that are concentrated under our green trees. And, And I'm not suggesting that when you buy your wife or husband or kids or parents a gift that that that's a sign of idolatry. Not at all. But but I do want us to maybe look introspectively and think, what is something that you want right now? Materialistically, maybe, and that's fine. Financially, to make your life better, easier, more comfortable, or whatever. Maybe something in a relationship, whatever it is. And think, what is, the, what is the, the the root, what is the source of that desire? Like, why do you want what you want? Really think about that. And not just now, like, take that with you when you leave tonight. Why do you want what you want? Because you know what the Lord says? I it's not up there, I don't think. But in Psalm 23, verse 1, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And again, I enjoy giving a little list to someone who asks what I want for Christmas or someone just blessing me and hey man, love you, wanted to give you this Christmas present or me doing the same and, and wrapping them put all that, I love it, it's, it's great. But if, if under any green tree is anything that would represent a, a place of idolatry in my life, in my marriage in my home, that takes precedence over my Lord. Well, that's sin and that's wrong. In Colossians chapter three, what are we told to do? We're told to set our affection on things above, not on things of the earth. And and I just think we get so caught up in what we call the spirit of Christmas The the commercialism, the materialism, and all those things. And and, and I don't think anyone, I'm not suggesting anyone in here is materialistic or or all about themselves or anything like that. Maybe you are, I don't know. But I think we would be, be wise, we would do well to look inside, what do I want? Know yourself well enough to know what you want and then why do you want that? Is it because it will bring me more comfort in some way? Is it because it will make my life a little easier? It'll make my marriage a little more bearable. It'll give me the recognition among my peers where they'll see me driving a certain vehicle, wearing certain kind of clothes, having a certain amount in my bank account, a certain amount of in, hanging with certain people, living in a certain house, going out on a certain kind of boat, whatever it is. Is it all about someone else's perception of me? You know, I often wonder this of myself, you know, how many times a day I look in the mirror and I wonder why I do that so much But I almost can't walk by a mirror without stealing. Even even if I'm walking past a store window and I know it's gonna show a reflection of yours truly, I'm gonna look. Why do I do that? It's because I love me, honestly. That's that's why. It's 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 pride. You know, well I wanna make sure my hair looks good and There's nothing embarrassing coming out of my nose or my shirt's not, you know, whatever. Why? Because I don't want other people to look at me and to think something bad about me. I want to give off a certain vibe, certain persona. And again, just at the root of that, Robert, that's dumb. Because I care so much about what other people think about me, the recognition, man, that was a, that was a great sermon, Robert. Praise the Lord for you. And then I play the humble card. Oh, man, praise the Lord, man. And then my pride starts getting in. Yeah, good job. You know? But I'm too busy looking in the mirror of self, think, caring what other people think about me, and not looking in the mirror of his word and seeing what he thinks about me and what he has called me to be and do, and to care more about him. Is that making sense? Okay, so so again, with all these verses, I'm not saying that God is hating on your Christmas tree, but I just want us to see the connection that God lays out in in his word with that which is under every green tree and idolatry. So that's generally speaking, right? Again, none of those call out your Christmas tree. <gasps> but does Jeremiah chapter 10 call out my Christmas tree? I don't know. Ooh. Okay, so turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. Uh, if you're not familiar with this, um, this is a passage. These first four verses or so, specifically I think verses three and four maybe, um, two if, two to four, somewhere in there. Uh, but th- these, this is the passage uh, where most people will go um, and listen, through the course of this week, I've watched a lot of video testimonies from people, Christians, who um, who take one stand and say, man, Christmas is a pagan holiday, and, and we're told in this passage not to learn the way of the heathen, and uh, we need to stop practicing Christmas. And then there are others who stand on the other side of the aisle and disagree with that, and um, say, well you know, we're, we're we're not worshiping those gods and we're not doing it for those reasons. And so we're gonna celebrate Christmas. Okay, so let's read this. I'll give some thoughts. I'll tell you where I stand, if it even matters. And then um, we'll go from there. But Jeremiah chapter 10 says this, Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, learn not the way of the heathen, And be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. For the customs of the people are vain. And then he goes to describe what the customs, the vain customs of the people are. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. That's interesting. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. And and, and don't we, now, I don't think you go to the forest and cut your tree. You either go to the attic and pull it out of the box and set it up because it's artificial or you go to a tree lot in a Winn-Dixie parking lot or whatever and you go buy one. Um, But don't we set it up and deck it with gold and silver and don't we kind of screw it down so it doesn't fall down and get knocked over and and all that stuff. Yeah, we do. (gasps) So that means, that means I'm a pagan. What'd you say? (laughs) You knew that. (laughs) You knew that when you hired me. (laughs) Um, And again, and okay, so I'm I'm being silly, but um, seriously, like this is something that I kind of had to work through. Because listen, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna conclude in a few minutes and show and talk to you briefly uh, about certain things from from Christmas that have pagan symbolism. It's like should I have that in my house? Should we even be celebrating that? Should we be singing those songs or whatever? And again, some people, well-meaning, who I believe love the Lord, feel very strongly. Uh, both, I guess, both sides of this. Um, I included a quote there under that verse, I think, in your notes. Uh, John Hinton, he's a PhD, uh, he writes this, um, and I quote, this is a clear and glaring warning against this this pagan holiday. He's talking about Jeremiah 10, verses one and following. And the wicked uh, time of commercialism and materialism that it has become. The Christmas tree is a blatant affront to God, but many, if not most, professed Christians put one up. Okay, well, he's right about a couple things. Uh, Many Christians, if not most, put Christmas trees up. Um, And I agree with him that that Christmas has become uh, commercialized and all about materialism. I, I agree. I don't believe that the Christmas tree is an affront to our God. Because when you read Jeremiah chapter 10, following one of the most fundamental keys of Bible study, which is context and comparing Scripture with Scripture, those two keys, what these people were doing, these pagans were doing, is they were worshiping. They were making idols out of these trees. And they were worshiping them. And lest you are taking your tree and, and bringing them, your family, to the altar of the tree and in some way worshiping it, biblically speaking, you're not violating God's word. But again, I will reference all those other verses about under every green tree. And if you're bringing your heart or your mind or your family to the the altar of whatever idol that is represented under that tree, then I think there is a problem there. Devotionally speaking, but don't don't take this passage and think um, that that God is saying that we can't have a Christmas. But it says, "Learn not the way of the heathen." Well, I know. But the way of the heathen was to again worship these idols, and, and that's not what I don't think what any of you are doing tonight. As, as you go. Out the door, past this beautiful tree that that Pam and Sarah put up. Um, I don't think you're going to offer a sacrifice to it, or bow down before it, or or you know, you know, whatever. You're not going to do that. So, so it's it's cool. But again, I just want us to know it, how. Why do we set a tree up? Why do we put presents under the tree? Why why do we hang wreaths on our doors? Why do we kiss under the mistletoe? Why is there a man named Santa Claus who is traveling uh, miraculously through the night um, led by eight reindeer? Like all of these things have, again, you don't have to go very far. I would encourage you to to go home uh, tonight or, or this weekend and just do a little bit of reading and see why does Santa have elves for helpers? Like all of these things, honestly, I'm not going to exhaust this, but all of these things do have pagan roots. they do and I'm not anti any of that stuff. I'm, I'm really not but we do, we need to know why we do what we do um, because for us it could be as harmless as Christmas, but what about in the house of God? What about in our relationship with the Lord? Do we know why we do what we do? Why why do we practice believer's baptism by full immersion in water? Why, why do we observe the Lord's Supper? Why do we, you know, X, Y, and Z? Well, we need to be an informed people. Come, let us reason together, saith the Lord. We need to be an informed people. Um, so so that's kind of what I want to do. Um, kind of just give you this picture here of Christmas. So I kind of have a few notes here. Um I'm not making a dogmatic statement by any of this stuff. I'm gonna throw it at you. You can hit it out of the park and forget about it. You can take it and read more into it. You can believe it or not. I won't sleep any worse tonight. It's all good, I promise. But these are things that I've been thinking about and things that I've been reading about and things that make me go, huh, yeah, that's exactly what I did, hmm, <laughs> hmm, I say. Okay, that's what my dad says all the time. All right, so, um, so Santa Claus, I'll start with him. You have this figure who is omniscient. He's all knowing. You better watch out. You better not cry. Better not pound on Santa Claus. He knows when you are asleep. What? Oh, yeah, you're welcome. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows if you've been. Bad or good? Am I go- the only one going to sing this? So it'd be good for goodness' sake. Whatever, y'all get out of town. Not even helping me. Okay. So he's this all-knowing. <laughs> yeah, that's what I said. I say he's getting out of town. Oh, oh, oh! I know, I know, I know. Um, so, so he, he's this all-knowing, so omniscient, um, and, and somewhat omnipresent figure. I mean, a man who can. Uh, I get it. It's tradition, fable, folklore, whatever. But he, he can, in one night, almost be kind of everywhere and kind of just all all at once, omnipresent. Um, who, who leaves gifts for people? And you know, the Bible says in James chapter one and verse seventeen that every good and perfect gift cometh down from above, from the Father of lights. And so you start thinking about Santa Claus, and man, it's almost like. He could be kind of a counter fit of God. Some kind of omnipresent, omniscient, gift giving. It's interesting. And then I was talking earlier about the Christmas tree and, and I was actually sharing this with my wife a couple of days ago, but I was looking at our Christmas tree and you know, when you decorate a tree, you put lights around it, right? That's usually the first thing. And maybe maybe put the top run first. And then ornaments and whatever. But that topper, usually it's one of two things. Now today, I think we kind of branched out. Like we have a snowflake because she has a snowflake on her shirt too. My wife loves snow. That, I'm not sure what that is, but is it a star or something? Yeah, see, you don't even know. See, like there's just so many things you can put up there. It's nice though, right? But typically, at least before, it's not pagan. It looks like a sun god, Pam. Weren't you? Is that Baal <laughs> or Molech or Nimrod? Okay, <laughs> all right, all right. There's our pastor's wife and, and her sidekick over there. No, so, but typically like before, you know, in the older days, you would put one of two things up there. You would put an angel, a winged angel, or a, a star. Most of us still mate, a five pointed star. And so I'm looking at the Christmas tree and thinking, it almost resembles all those lights and then above, exalted, above the stars of heaven, above the angels of God, a cherub, or a five, represented by a five, you know, there were five cherubs in the Bible. One was fallen, and now there's four. So Lucifer fell. A five-pointed star exalted above all the other at the apex of the second heaven, there. I don't think that's literally what's going on, but like, there's something there to that. I'm like, why? Why does it look like that? That's interesting. Um, and, and and not just the, the spiritual aspect there, but remember what we read: how that old stump, the the the, the, the dead stump, if you will, at the base of your tree back there represents the dead Nimrod. And and then the evergreen, the the lively part, the the living part represents his, quote, rebirth, um, this new life in Tammuz. Um, It's just very interesting. Um, I'm aware that there's a wreath right here. It's a very nice one. I like it. Um, So I'm not anti-wreath. But you don't have to read very far online or in books or whatever that you read to know that there are a lot of um, pagan symbolism with uh, mistletoe. Why do we kiss under mistletoe? It's because mistletoe was a symbol of fertility and, and, and sexual activity. And, and so we, we we smooch under the mistletoe now. Um, the wreath, as I mentioned a second ago, um, I'm gonna be as, as um, conservative as I can, uh, but the wreath uh, it is a symbol. And again, unless you think I'm just out there, please go read it for yourself you'll find it quickly. Uh, the wreath is a symbol because, um, uh, okay, so if you put a wreath on a, on a, on a table or a circular, like, evergreen material on a table, what do you often put inside of it? Yeah. Don't ask me, you know. Candles? Yeah. Candles. Yeah. Um, and, and this, this is not me, but I'm just telling you, uh, you can read this for yourself. Uh, in pagan culture, Babylon, um, even in, in, with Saturnalia, you would see, have the, the, the wreath which would represent the uh, female reproductive organ and candles in there representing uh, the male phallic organ symbol. Um, and that's not a far stretch from what what um, Pastor Frank has talked about in the past with uh, those really tall buildings. We obelisk. We have one uh, in, in our capital city in Washington D.C. called the Washington Monument, um, which, by the way, is five hundred and fifty-five feet tall and a hundred and eleven feet below the ground. So, okay. Uh huh. 666, Amy. Um, Vatican Square. I don't know why they call it a square because it's really a circle, but there's an obelisk right in the middle of the Vatican. And um, it's in a circle. And same with the Washington Monument. If you look, there's a circle like right there. There's a circle right there. And there's a big obelisk. But in the Vatican, same thing, circle, obelisk, and then, this is just for funsies, there's like eight uh, line, rows, lines, lanes, maybe. And basically, the way it works, it's almost like a sundial. And the way it works is as the sun is, based on the Earth's rotation, facing that part of the Earth at different times, of course, the shadow of the, whatever that's called, the building there, Um that obelisk, as its it, the shadow, will face different positions as the course of the day goes on. Whenever that shadow falls within, you, you can just Google a picture, and you'll see what I'm talking about. Whenever that shadow falls within one of those eight lines or lanes, I guess, of that circle, sac, a child sacrifice happens. It goes back to pagan practices. There's a there's a lot of wickedness that goes on. There's these obelisks in Texas, in Paris, in in, in Russia, and all over the world. And again, don't take my word for things. Read them. Yeah, I, I, you look confused. It's all good. Yeah, I was too. But but I I reference uh, that Yule, that Yule law that goes in the fire. Um. Do you remember Molek? Do you remember that? Where they would sacrifice, where God said, don't pass your kids through the fire. They would would sacrifice their kids on the altar of Molech. Infanticide. I don't know. There's just a lot of this going on. And and none of us in here, present speaker included, um, uh, are actively involved in any of this stuff. I know we're not, it's all good. So again, I know I, I'm restating myself to the point of irritation here, but I'm gonna do it one more time. I'm not anti-Christmas, I'm not anti any of this stuff, but let's just be an informed people and know where some of this comes from. Because what happened back in the Pergamus Church period with Constant, starting with Constantine, didn't end with Constantine. There is even stuff going on today that that in the Roman Catholic Church, even in, in the church as we know it. And we'll unpack that. We'll talk more about Nimrod and all that stuff as we get there. But, but I just want us to be aware and maybe be intentional about taking what has pagan roots, what could be a source of idolatry under every green tree, and just be intentional this year with your heart, with your mind, with your families about glorifying the Lord, right? I, 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 no, I don't believe, I put money on it, that Jesus was not born on December 25th. But that doesn't mean that we can't celebrate as our culture kind of does this thing. We can't celebrate as the body of Christ, the birth of our Lord, the God in flesh. We can do that, okay? So, so let's not be afraid of those things. Father, I love you. I thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. I pray that you would be glorified in how we process this information and what we do with it, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to The Revealing, a podcast ministry of One Baptist Church in Jacksonville, Florida. Senior Pastor Frank Salvaggio. Associate Pastor Robert Engel. For more information about One Baptist Jacks, please go to our website, onebaptistjacks.com. Dot world or email us info at onebaptistjax.world.